parents started coming to me, the other parents from the team were like, what the hell did you tell those girls? Because at home now they're like, what's your number, mom? What's your anxiety number, dad? And I'm like, I love this. Um, so they were like bringing it home. And I, I said, now you can learn from your kids how to calm down. So, and they said, Thank, thanks, Doug, didn't they? <laughs> Doug, thanks for that. And then I sent them all a bill. This podcast represents the opinions of our hosts and guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice and is for informational purposes only. This podcast also does not establish a standard of care, doctor-patient, or client relationship. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast or website. And because each person is so unique, all listeners are encouraged to connect with counseling and medical professionals for assistance with their personal journey. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect the privacy of those involved. Welcome to We're Not Fine. I'm Dr. Talia Jackson. And I'm Doug Jensen. We thank you for listening every week to our deep and thought-provoking conversations about relationships. Hello. Guten Tag. Oh, you're speaking German today. Is there a reason for that? I actually, do you know yes. that I have a couple of lines in German that I know that are very important? Oh, wait, one of them is Greek. I know how to say nipples in German. What is it? And I will say, and please forgive me, anyone who's a native German speaker, but it is maybe the ugliest word for nipples? It's horrible. So I can tell you that I took German for a long time, and then I traveled to Germany when I was 16. So I do have some German in my repertoire. So I, I don't know the word nipple, though. Okay, tell me if you think that what I'm about to say is nipple or my other line. Which is? How's the weather today? Are you ready? Okay. <clears throat> no, no, no. Actually, it's das Wetter ist sehr schön heute. Like it's beautiful today. Breastvarts. Ooh. <laughs> um, I don't think breastvarts is a word. Not <laughs> breastvarts. That was my really good German accent. It's breastwarts. Breastvarts. I know, you guys. That's not a romance language. V Gates. V Gates, how's it going? Sehr schön. Oh, that's pretty good. All right. Wow. This was so, okay. So the other line that I was thinking, it's actually Greek. And I had a really good friend named Lee Kafkas. Do you remember me? It was 25 I years ago. I love Greek food. We were in um, University now. of Minnesota together. And he taught me how to say, Thelospiti horis epipla. Ooh. Which okay. means, I think it means, I'm looking for an apartment with no furniture. That comes in handy probably a lot, <laughs> is what I really think. Here's the interesting thing. You know, one of the most difficult words is gyro or oh, yeah. gyro or hero, or yes. I hear people say it all different ways. That's right. I think it's gyro. Gyro. Guess what? Tell me. You already know this because I, I was on the this. phone with you, <laughs> you which were. I'm always on yeah. the phone with you. But I was just, you know, I don't even remember what we were talking about. Our I'm usual morning banter. And I come home and I'm like, all right, dog, I've got to run. You know, I've got to get into family mode. And then you shrieked. And then I shrieked and I was like, oh, my God. My eldest son, who is now really into fishing, walks out of the house and he's like, hey, mom. And he has a three prong <laughs> fishing lure <laughs> stabbed. Two of the prongs aye, are aye, stabbed aye. 
into his shin. I literally thought I was going to die. Um, I shrieked. He was calm as a cucumber. He was. And I think, did you, and I forgot I was on the phone with you. And I was like, are you fucking with me right now? I say to my 15 year old. Cause and I'm, then I get serious and I'm like, Talia, you need to tell me what happened. Like what scene did you just walk into? Or is your family bloodied or whatnot? And then of course your lovely son yeah. says, give me your phone. I'm texting Doug a picture. Yeah. <laughs> and so he texts me a picture of it. And I'm like, He's so in the moment and thoughtful and like calm. He was and like, so calm. Doug wants to see, so I'm going to show him. Yeah, and there were more photos of that child with these yeah. hooks in his leg, with like the thumbs up, like <laughs> in the car. I loved it. In yep. like outside of the yep. ER as the doctors like cutting the you know, prongs, whatever it was. It was yeah. an absolute disgusting nightmare, and he was totally fine. He was totally fine, which interestingly enough, our topic today yes. has everything to do with his, with his response. You know, we're going to be talking with the amazing Dr. Henry Emmons about resiliency. That's right. And how it works and why it's important for our bodies and our minds. And it's funny, you know, your son just kind of showed him not, not so much his mother, I will tell you. You were like, don't show me. I'm going to, you know, I can't, I can't watch like, I'm this. I'm going to die. You're going to die. Faint. So as you are like being really like intense and reactive, it's true. your son is like, Please give me your phone. This, I'm going Mom. to text. I'm going to text Doug a picture. He does a lot of, of like injurious. He does a lot of like the there there. He like rubs my back, like rubs my arm. He's just like it's okay. Which We're is kind of be interesting, okay. right? Because he's so the one sweet. with the fish hook in his hand, and yet he's comforting <gasps> his mother. So when we talk about his therapy in 20 years, we're going to be talking about his caregiving tendencies and his adultification. Uh, which is not true, by the no, way. No, but are you an know, incredible parent. That also, if I can be a mess from time to time, and then he can step up and comfort me, yeah. you're welcome, his future <laughs> partners. That's a nice spin on that. I yeah. appreciate that. I think it's going to turn out that way. I do, I actually. So. I think you, you and your husband are amazing parents oh. to these amazing children. Oh, hi, Father. Good job. You're so sweet. Love those children of yours. Love them both. <clears throat> That's fairly sweet. I yep. I really love them too. They're pretty freaking great. Um, spoiler alert, we already did the episode with Dr. Henry Emmons, and it was so amazing. And we are really excited. We're excited to show you all the things that we learned. You will learn and grow from this beautiful experience from this beautiful man. And without further ado, enjoy. Everybody, we are beyond excited to share with you one of the greatest psychiatrists. I've known him for 25 years, probably longer than I've known you even. Wow. This is Dr. Henry Emmons, and he and I know each other from when I was doing my pre-doctoral internship at mm. Augsburg college um, in Minneapolis, and you were our consulting psychiatrist at the Counseling Center. Right, right. I remember that. I mean, we were both babies then. <laughs> we were. And since then. I like that easy agreement. I have probably referred, I don't know, like 85 people to you over the course of a 20 some years. Ah, that explains why I'm so busy. <laughs> they're all coming from Talia's they're, practice. They're all coming from my practice. 
Um, but this is what is this is what is so special about you and why I refer everybody to you is that I have not met many psychiatrists that identify themselves as being holistic psychiatrists that you see yourself as a healer. You think about resilience. You think about a person as a whole. And I love that you combine science with soul as your brand, as the way that you move about in your practice and in the world. You've written The Chemistry of Joy, which I've read. We read it actually at Augsburg and The Chemistry of Calm, also fabulous, and Staying Sharp. And you have your own podcast, which I recently just found out about called The Joy Lab. And there's also, I think, an associated e-course that goes with that as well. So like the combination of your podcast and the e-course, I mean, I can just imagine that it's, you know, blending science and soul and how to be a healthy human. And so I can't believe that you agreed to be on our show. I'm so excited. It's like having a celebrity. <laughs> I'm really happy to be here. I'm glad you're here as well, Dr. Emmons. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. And, you know, it's interesting, just as Talia was even talking about, you know, your books and your accomplishments, I think so much as a clinician, like, how does this change over time? How does the knowledge base work? What do we learn about the brain? Um, I'm just kind of fascinated with the evolution of your understanding of how this works based on your career. Um, but I kind of want to just focus in a little bit on this whole word resiliency, which we as mm -hmm. clinicians face every day in our practice. Uh, we utilize it to help people go through changes and losses and uh, difficulties and obstacles in their lives, injuries, illnesses. Like I work a lot with HIV, long-term people with uh, living with HIV. And so I've watched them evolve over the course of time from Giving a getting a death sentence, for example, to being able to survive that illness in a more chronic and long term way. But, you know, it requires so much resiliency, regardless of what people are experiencing. So I'm kind of curious about how you understand resiliency and how you would think it affects our practice and working with people. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's that's been a really important term for me as well in, in my work. And and I think it's it's one of the things that inspired me to move into what I consider to be more of a holistic or integrative psychiatric practice. Um, you know, I think of resilience as, as really being an innate quality, an inborn quality that really every human being has. In fact, I think every, every aspect of nature has built-in resilience. It's being tested now, both in nature and in us human beings, it's really being tested. But, you yeah. know, you can you can still see it's there in all kinds of ways. So to me, it's just it's very, very natural. Um, however, it really it really can be impacted by too many stresses or strains, too much change, um, too many things going on in one's mind that sort of pull them out of balance. There's so many things that that can put more pressure on that. But the really remarkable thing to me is how, how some people are able to keep bouncing back, to keep, keep, yeah. uh, you know, keep themselves upright when there's so many things kind of pummeling them. I think um, some of the best examples of resilience that I've seen are actually some patients who, who really do have a, a severe illness or a lifelong problem with anxiety or something like that. And yeah. yet they keep going, they keep trying, you know, often they, 
they seek out someone like me because they aren't willing to give up on, you know, medications not working or, you know, not having achieved really sustained benefit from whatever treatments they've been doing. You know, people keep keep trying and and uh, keep going in their lives in spite of all the, the headwinds that are there sometimes. Yeah. I mean, what I really love about what you said is that so many people have this stigma around asking for help or seeking help as a sign of weakness. And what you're seeing is basically it's a sign of resilience that you're yeah. not giving up, that you're continuing to try, that you're trying to generate new ideas, new resources. And so seeking professional help is, in fact, a sign of resilience. I mean, I love oh, that. I agree. And, I, you know, I think it's it's also it also requires someone to face directly whatever it is that they're facing, you know, which is, a, I think, another sign of resilience. You know, it's, it's so easy and tempting sometimes to avoid it or to cover it over or, you know, get really busy so that you don't have to feel what you're feeling. But it's, uh, I think it's a sign of strength and, and resilience to, to face more directly whatever is going on there. And so you brought up the concept of like, it is inborn, it is innate, you are born with resilience. And yes, there are external factors that play a huge part in testing us or pushing us down or straining, stressing our resilience. But what do you think about the relationship between like, is it how much is nature? How much is nurture? Is it like, you can be born with incredible resilience. Therefore, there are all of these risk factors, external forces beating you down and you will have that bounce back. Or like if you have really low, if you were born with a really low level of resistance, then the tiniest thing will just destroy you. Or yeah. like how do, how do you see that balance, that relationship? Yeah, yeah. I, I do believe it's inborn and yet there are different degrees different capacities that people have for for withstanding the you know the trials and tribulations of life and so our capacity for resilience is there's a wide range of it and like you said there are some people who are born with this huge capacity um, and yet if there's enough things that happen and this we see this a lot somewhere in the middle of life you know when Maybe you have aging parents, you have a child who's struggling, or you lose a job or, you know, marital problems or something like that. Some combination, usually. It's usually not just one thing that brings them down, but two or three or four things that, that all happen within kind of a short time frame. And then, you know, anybody can, can be brought to their knees with enough of those things happening. But um, I think that there are two really big variables that kind of set our resilience capacity, if you will. And one of them is genetics. I, I don't think there's much question in my mind. I, I'm a believer in biology and genetics. And, and they do set a certain tone, if you will, that, that mm. might follow us you know, through our lives more or less. I believe we can change that and we can come back to that later. But, but I think that... Um, you know, the, the genetics definitely play a part in this. And the, the, the research has been 
really good and really consistent about mental health problems that about 50% of the cause or the reason why one person gets this illness and another doesn't is is attributable to genetics. Mm -hmm. So it's a big player. And I think the second big factor that we have little control over, little to none, is the early childhood environment and experience. And there's a lot being written and studied about that now, particularly with, you know, teenagers and all of the the struggles that are happening there that, um, you know, much of that is impacted by by those early childhood experiences, not only traumatic experiences, but also the um, kind of the tone and the the degree of warmth and support of the family that they grew up in. Those things are hugely impactful. And again, we can't really do much about that because we're little and you know just growing up in it. Um, And so, and it, and it can be really enduring, but there again, you know, as adults, this is a lot of what happens in good therapy. I think is that those, those patterns can be healed and changed. And I think even the genetic patterns to some extent, we can learn to soften them or, or, or adapt in, in ways that are really, really helpful. But um, so aside from those two things, which might determine the size of this resilience container, if you will, um, then there are all of these day-to-day, year-to-year factors, things we often refer to as stress or loss or um, life challenges. These are the things that tend to put a pressure on this capacity for resilience. And if enough of those things go on, go on you know, people can become depleted, essentially. You, you, you lose this elixir of resilience that keeps us healthy and balanced. Or at least you don't have enough of it to be able to withstand the next thing that comes along because you're, you're, so, you're so relatively depleted. So I think a lot of a lot of my work, and I think a lot of what constitutes uh, really helpful preventive uh, approaches to these problems, has to do with with restoring that your capacity for resilience, whatever size your container is. You know, trying to get enough things back in there that you can also handle whatever life throws your way. I mean, I really like the idea that it can be changed and healed and softened and that there are tools to help people instead of always feeling like the cumulative effect of the stress leaves you unable to face whatever next thing. It makes people so fragile, but that you can actually heal it to the point and learn skills that now it's preventative. Like we're working on have building the resilience container so that we can face hard things. Well, and I think that concept is really helpful because it helps people to maybe even put a concept or an understanding of what might be going on for them when they don't feel resilient, when they feel like they have no hope, when they, you know, because one of the next things that I was kind of curious to ask about is, you know, what are these factors that do influence how somebody manages life stressors? And you've answered a bunch of that so far. I'll be honest, I kind of went down that path of like, when do people actually reach that point where there's no hope? Uh, We see obviously in the uh, late teenage years, as well as early adult years, these people are having a very hard time given our culture right now and those big experiences politically and racially and environmentally and whatnot. People are having a very hard time finding that hope. 
So we see increased suicide rates right now. And I'm just going to bring up that word because I think about when people just do not have that capacity to manage the multiple stressors that are going on externally and, uh, and otherwise. I want to also add a piece about like that, that childhood experience that you referenced. It's not only, I think, you know, what it is that goes on for people, like what they experience as a child and whatnot, but what they've been taught about how to manage those stressors from those people in charge of them, whether they're teachers or parents or other adults that are influencing their development, like being able to help a child understand you can cry, you can have those emotions and you can work through those things. That nurturing experience from that that caregiver can be really instrumental, I think, in teaching that resilience and that hope during those yeah, times. I totally agree. I think if we really took preventive mental health approaches seriously, yeah. we would focus on on uh, giving kids some of those very basic healthy emotional skills somewhere, yeah. you know, between ages, I don't know, four and 12, something like that. You know, the, if we, yeah. if we, yep. if we focused at that age, just giving them these kind of simple, but sustainable tools that they could they, they plant the seeds even, and then they, you, you can keep getting better at these things. And you think what you mentioned about just, having some degree of emotional awareness and ability to sit with an unpleasant emotion is an incredibly helpful skill. And if we take that away too soon, you know, try to trying to be a good parent and, and prevent your child from having any distress or, you know, emotional challenges, it, we may not be doing them the favor we think because it it might be that it's a really good skill to develop early on. I'm confident we're not giving them much of it. Uh, <laughs> I'm just going to make a big determination about that on my end. You know, I think obviously that reflects, I think, a caregiver's uh, discomfort with emotion, discomfort with letting pain happen. And I think oftentimes I've worked with people um, and probably myself as a parent and maybe you as a parent, like we've had our own experience of, of not wanting our child to be in pain. Right. You know, so we want to take away that pain. We want to help them through it. We ask them not to cry. We, you know, help them, you know, buck, buck up. up, right? What a horrible message right. that is. And, you know, it's yeah. interesting, though, as we talk about this, I, I oftentimes will tell people, and I appreciate the, the focus on, like, emotional awareness, because I think people need to be aware this is what's going on for me. I have too much stress going on, because that allows us as providers and clinicians to really help people understand. And I always talk about eat, sleep, exercise. I just keep it very basic with my clients, like, you have to replenish somehow. You have to get yourself to a place where you have resources in order to manage these stressors and move forward and and deal. And, you know, everyone's different about how they do that, you know, whether they have uh, whatever other mental health comorbid issues might be going on. You know, I totally, totally agree with you about that. And I use those same three things um, over and over again, because the and I think of it as as lifestyle medicine, you know, being able to yeah, yeah. incorporate a few kind of sound and solid practices at any age that that may not necessarily get you to that feeling of really hopefulness or or feeling like you can really embrace your life again but it can go a very long ways towards <clears throat> helping you feel more stable, more balanced, more energy, more focused so that you can take on the things that you need to take on in your life. The lifestyle things may not fix everything, but they really go a long ways toward helping us be able to approach things with our full set of abilities and, and strengths and 
you know, awareness is. One thing I've noticed um, in my practice is that I feel like sometimes people have an enormous fear of relationships or, you know, intimacy, transition, going for that new big job, taking any sort of risk um, because they have a relationship with disappointment that is so intense and scary to them. And I feel like there must be a relationship there about somebody's fear of what happens to them when they feel disappointed and their level of resilience. Like you're Mm -hmm. not necessarily afraid of this person breaking up with you as much as how you're going to react or not getting the job as much as how you're going to be so devastated and not be able to bounce back. Um, and what do you think? I mean, I know that this this wasn't in the itinerary at all, but like, what do you think of the idea of just like being more disappointment proof or helping you level set expectations as one of the ways that you can be protecting yourself against that the devastation of yeah. a letdown or loss? Yeah. Well, I'm going to um, make a, a leap here um, because I think you're you're entering the area of neuroscience with with this question. I think you're entering the the what I would consider to be neuroplasticity. Mm. And and it's worth kind of describing that, I think, because it it to me it's one of the foundational pieces of what I think should give hope to folks, no matter how badly they're feeling, how long they've been feeling that way. Because it's I think the neuroscience here has been just very encouraging to me, the way I read it, it's very encouraging. So in, in really uh, simple terms, we create neural pathways through learning, new, le- new learnings. And, and that learning includes emotional learning. So the way that we respond to an emotion like disappointment, for mm-hmm. example, um, it, it becomes ingrained in us if we allow ourselves to keep doing that, having that similar sort of reaction again and again. So like let's the, just say, the neurons that fire together, wire together, that that's the, yep. That idea that, that if you've, if you create a certain reaction with it, the brain to take another step back here, the brain communicates by um, sending electrical signals from one central area to another. There's all these little nuclei in the brain. So we think of depression, for example, as a serotonin deficiency. And it's just not that simple. It's, mm-hmm. it's really more about these channels of communication and these electrical inputs that are mediated by the chemicals like serotonin and dopamine, but they're not the whole name of the game. So, so it's about these um, patterns of communication within the brain itself. Mm. And so if you have, you know, emotion is a complex thing. And if you have a certain reaction to a similar emotion again and again, you, you, you reinforce the, the links of communication between these different parts of the brain. So that every little letdown is devastation, for instance, or like this is how I react to loss or letdown. Yes, it probably wasn't that strong at first, 
but you know, if you keep practicing that, in a sense, mm-hmm. that's what you're doing is you're practicing it, then eventually it might really get to feeling devastating. But the the good news there is that it's possible to recognize that pattern, to, to be able to have enough observational capacity that you can you can feel that emotion of disappointment right at the very start, right, right when it begins to kind of create a contraction in your body before it's a really big deal. You know, there's this little initial reaction that we have. And, and if you can learn to recognize that you can gain a lot more influence, let's say over where it goes and what you do with it. And a, like a really, really simple but powerful way to deal with that is simply to sit with that emotion and observe it for a while and let yourself have it long enough that it starts to dissipate. And, and again, that's not a difficult, it's really not a difficult thing to learn. We as a profession and maybe as a culture, we have mythologized mental health to, to, so that we think it's really, really complicated and, <laughs> and it requires professionals like us. And, and, you know, don't worry, none of us are going to go out of business. But I think that <laughs> it's, it's, there are, it's simpler than we have maybe thought it to be as a culture. Well, thank Dr. Freud and all the other people for that uh, complexity <laughs> of how this works. I, get, I just really want to highlight this. I, like it's making me smile and it makes my, uh, you know, my excitement go a little bit. Um, the reality is, you know, to be able to just sit in your space and kind of figure out like how, what you're feeling and what you're experiencing. I've often told my clients, you know, if you're feeling that like punch in the gut or you're feeling that chest pain mm-hmm. about a breakup or a loss, just lay on the bed and start breathing and start, you know, taking some deeper breaths and you will eventually not feel that way anymore. It does dissipate. Yeah. So it's a, an incredibly simple concept. That's why I was like, I apologize for interrupting. I was so excited about this. Yeah, this is such an it. interesting point. And we can help our kids do that. And we can help, you know, so when we start talking about like parents and caregivers and coaches, I remember uh, when my younger was playing hockey, uh, her team, their, their team, non-binary, their team was doing so well and they went to state and the the girls on the on the team were just freezing on the bench like they weren't even hearing the coach tell them to go in because they were getting so much competition and the other teams didn't love them because they knew they were good um and the coach actually pulled me in and said can you do group there's something going on here um and so i really had them stay aware of their anxiety level and and scale it on a one to ten and if they were above a four they had to do one of the three strategies that i gave them to calm down um and it was very funny because then parents started coming to me the other parents from the team were like what the hell did you tell those girls because at home now they're like what's your number mom what's your anxiety number dad and i'm like holy (laughs) shit i love this Um, so they were like bringing it home and i i said now you can learn from your kids how to calm down. So and they said, Thank, thanks, Doug, didn't they? <laughs> Doug, thanks for that. And then I sent them all a bill. <laughs> for $5 million. But it was so powerful for them just to think about, like, on the bench, like, what's going on for you? And if you see your teammate, like, frozen, yeah. check in with them. Like, what's your number? What do you need to do to, to get in touch uh, with those emotions? So I love But that's it. What- what's so crazy is that it's like there's nothing more simple in theory than you guys there is a tool to yeah. help you be aware of your emotional state. All you need to do is sit with it 
as painful as it is, and it dissipates that. It's like mind-blowing in its simplicity and the way that it works. But it is like, it's like so incredibly hard to do. Just sit it, with it's, it. It's hard at first. It's hard at first. But if you, with a little practice, it it becomes easier and easier. I, I like to, to compare it, for example, to someone with stage fright or you know, fear of public speaking, let's say. The first time you get up in front of an audience to try to speak, it's incredibly difficult. But if it's important to you, if, if you need to do this, let's say, to, for your living or what have you, then you're willing to work through that discomfort. And every time you do that, it gets a little easier and a little easier and a little easier. It may never go away entirely. But, you know, that's a good example, I think, of rewiring your, your brain to this is no longer a catastrophic, panic-inducing event. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. uncomfortable, but I can deal with the, the, the discomfort. And I think that's kind of similar with any strong emotion, you know, that the, the more we are willing and able to face it, the, the more comfortable we become with it. Well, and the interesting piece is this is where substance abuse or other addictive elements mm. can come in, because I think when we have those experiences of discomfort, our natural tendency is to want to make them go away. Yeah, we are crawling right. so out we, of our skin. We do all kinds of things, probably including calling Dr. Emmons for some immediate medication, <laughs> immediate. some Xanax or something. To, <laughs> that <you> know, has <laughs> happened. I am positive it has, right? Once or a million times. And for some people that benefits, like to be able to take yeah. something to help kind of soothe them at the moment or calm their brain a little bit so they can actually be in touch with what these things are. Um, very curious about that point of view for you as well. But I think that's the piece is, you know, what what we do during those times is really important to be able to. And, and it's so simple to think about just observing ourselves. But we run from it. We try to make it go away. We work out extra. We do whatever it is to get through it. But which is not always the worst thing, but that can right. be overdone as well. Um, I do want to know more, like in terms of like encouraging resiliency in children. What do you think parents and coaches and teachers should be doing? Yeah. Well, let me, let me give a caveat first that I, I've never worked with children. Um, I've, I've worked with college students a bunch. That's yeah. where Talia and I met. And of course, college students are not yet fully formed. You know, their, their brains are still kind of, you know, growing and coalescing and so forth. But I've never worked with young kids. The, co the college age where their brains are still like they're hungry to change those yeah. patterns, you yeah. know, they and they still have this open minded, their frontal lobe hasn't completely developed. And so they I feel like they're so interested in living a different and better life than maybe the one that they grew up in. And they're I love it. But, yeah, I mean, I'm assuming maybe that they're similar to what you're wanting to teach well, again, I think I do think that a lot of things can be taught very, very simply. And, um, you know, in a sense, it's this is what. Very similar to what I did with the resilience training program that I've done for years and that now the Joy Lab and the Joy Lab program, we're trying to to offer very simple, learnable skills. I really like to think of it as skills rather than, you know, something external or or some just just an insight you've got to apply it you got to create it a new skill so with kids i think mm -hmm. the skills are similar you know pe kids need to 
learn at least some basic ways to um, allow their mind to to settle, you know, not to be quite so caught up in thoughts or distracted, just like adults do. So allowing mm-hmm. the mind to settle just a little bit doesn't have, they don't have to be Zen practitioners. They just need, you know, a little quiet probably. So if a couple minutes of quiet and then, um, and then learning to place their attention where they choose to put it, you know, it sounds so simple, but be surprised how few people really are adept at that. And so in, in this instance, it might be learning to put your attention on your chest or abdomen where the emotion is usually felt. Yeah. And then, you know, maybe just a little bit of knowledge or being conversant with the emotions and some of the difficult or unpleasant emotions. It's, you know, pretty simple. It's, it's sadness, anger, and fear are the three basic mm. ones for adults and for kids. Yeah. And, and then kind of learning how to distinguish, you know, how do they feel different from each other? How does each one affect my body? And, and it's really a very much a mind-body thing so that they can learn to to place their attention and experience what this is happening, what's, what this is doing in their body. And, and then notice how it changes. With my being able to watch and observe it, does it change a little bit? Does it get stronger, weaker, move around? Um, you know, does it eventually let go? And it's just a simple observational practice, but incredibly helpful. And it also, like, being in that observational curious place takes you out of the pain and helps you kind of be in that observational space to allow the mind body connection to be something that maybe you don't feel like you're drowning in or wrapped up in if you're just like a few steps outside of it noticing yeah. but but that's hard to do I mean, it kind of goes back to the myth uh, that we have related to mental health. Like, I think people feel like just talking about it or getting through something is going to make this go away or it's going to heal. And I always I oftentimes will talk about trauma this way. Like the goal of trauma work is not to never have that experience again or never have that trauma uh, reaction. It's more to be aware of what what is going on for you when that happens and what to do differently to get through that and be resilient to those experiences. But I really think, and I also want to say, you know, when we talk about sadness, fear, and anger, boy, those are so overlapping at times, and they can occur mm-hmm. simultaneously in the same kind of grief experience, for example, if you've yeah. had a substantial loss. Um, and so it's really important, and I think it's hard sometimes for people to really discern what their primary experience is. But, you know, I'll admit, I mean, there's times when I get hurt, and so I lash out, or, you know, whatever mm-hmm. it might be, we are all human that way. And we have to kind of really focus, if we can, on that real piece that is underlying this. Is it one of those? And really, you know, that's where the work is. So that identification becomes a really core piece of, I think, recovery in whatever way that looks like and healing. Yep, agreed. Yeah. And since, you know, we also, we don't work with children. We don't really work with teenagers, although we've owned a few. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we're, I'm still, you know, in the throes of it. But um in terms of like working with adults and thinking about adults in healthy relationships, like we're wanting to help our people be healthy 
resilient and also like resilient in relationships. Like, can you think of any daily practices that could help us as fully formed adults, just like, I'm going to work on these few things every single day so that I can handle curveballs. I can handle an, a little argument. I can handle a little strain. I can handle a quick change of plans. I can handle if someone said they'd text, but they didn't, or, you know, like the relational types of resilience. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I'm thinking of, of a, uh, a very simple cycle that we teach in joy lab this is this comes from the joy lab program that we and we really work with this again and again because it's it's something you can apply in so many different instances and this really i draw from my my experience with mindfulness and teaching mindfulness so it's it's kind of you'd you'll recognize the mindfulness influence but it's just my interpretation mm. of of how to operationalize it, if you will. <clears throat> so it's, it's three simple things. First is to see what is. This mm -hmm. is that observational awareness. To be able to see clearly what's happening as it's happening, so in the moment, if possible. So um, in relationships, you know, th it might be that there is a tense exchange let's say mm -hmm. you've had just had a argument or a pre-argument or something that you, you just you sense that there's something off something uncomfortable before leaping to interpreting it you know and and making all kinds of assumptions about it which is what we usually do you can just observe you can see okay what's really happening right now Mm -hmm. And what's happening is I'm developing a discomfort, an uncomfortable feeling because of this, something in the nature of this conversation. The second thing is accept. <clears throat> so see what is and then accept what is. Mm. And this is tricky, I think, because we often view acceptance as, okay, I'm just going to let it go. I'm just going to... Um, resign myself to it. I'm going to be passive. It's not that at all. Accepting, accepting what is just means you don't push it away. You don't deny it. You don't put your head in the sand. <clears throat> you, you see it and you say, okay, this is what's happening and I can stay with it. Yeah. I can be with it. The third thing, which maybe doesn't stem as directly from mindfulness, but I think it, well, I think it's there. And that is to choose wisely. So in other words, we can't stop at the level of thinking or accept, observing and accepting. We, we can, but it's, it's <clears throat> more healthy and it's going to be more effective if we take that <clears throat> observation and the insight and the acceptance and being willing to face it and then we do something. We act. But I, I use the word choose because um, it, it, it puts the agency back into yeah. us. <clears throat> you know, what am I going to do given these circumstances, given that this, I just had this conversation, am I just going to 
let it go? Am I going to say something? Am I going to lash out? You know, but again, to choose and choose wisely, choose consciously. Okay, this is what I want to do, given these circumstances. Now, you know, that's a little tricky. That tiny little pause makes all the difference in responding versus reacting. It puts the agency back in. This is actually a choice. I don't have to lash out every time I feel this feeling. Yeah. That's amazing. It's Yeah, but you said something I think that's really key, which is the tiny little pause. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. it, that is, I think that is essentially what you're aiming for with a mindfulness practice or just any kind of awareness, self-awareness practice. You're trying to give yourself a little space in order to access your own wisdom and make the best choice you can given the circumstances. But that space has got to be there and you got to create it because otherwise your emotions will take you down paths you don't really want to go. They're not healthy. Not helpful. And the interesting thing about making a different choice or, or choosing wisely um, mm-hmm. kind of reminds me of the wise mind uh, piece of DBT, right? Uh, or dialectical behavioral therapy. There's a part of this where I, I probably extrapolate that, that choose wisely to every single behavioral piece that might happen, <clears throat> like making a different choice in a relationship choice, making, you know, changing your pattern of who you date because you find out that you know, this person is not the right person for me. I end up feeling anxious and I end up feeling insecure about that attachment on a regular basis. Mm. So I see that choosing wisely as having this massive, massive manifestation and meaning like in in, in career, all of the things that we do in this life. If we can make choices that are wise based on what we're feeling and what we experience in those roles and circumstances, how great is that? And it really does give us some self-determination. Yeah. Yeah. That intentionality. Yeah. I want to add one piece to this because I think, you know, some people would hear this and either either think that, oh, that sounds so hard to do again over and over, or they might think I have to do it perfectly. Mm. I have to cho- cho- make the right choice every time and it just That's puts right. pressure on them. And what I like to what I like to say is that if you choose make the wise choice. 51% of the time, you're moving in the right direction. You know I, mean? I love it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because these kind of three-step programs to mindfulness, this this three-step uh, method that you talked about, the reality is it might need to be redone over and over and over. So if you make a choice that That's makes right. you feel, you know, not so great, it's about still going to that level of like, this is what's going on for me and this is what I have to accept. That's right. And then I get to make a different choice again. It, this not is not about being a perfect yourself. human being, right? Yeah, because that That's shame right. spiral ruins everything for us in moving forward. If we're then angry at ourselves for making the wrong choice, then we make all these decisions about ourselves that, again, you can use all of this. This is what happened. This I am accepting that that wasn't me showing up at my best and... What do I want to do about it now? Yeah, exactly. You, you know, and jumping into choices a little bit, you know, one of the things that this podcast kind of focuses in on is relationships, right? Like we talk about dating, we talk about, you know, choices of our friends and our, you know, what we do with family matters, what we do with any sort of relationship that people experience in their lives, which of course is, you know, countless. Um, but, you know, the, the question kind of comes up about 
do people need to sort out their own experiences, but also choose somebody that has the ability to be resilient? Like, what do you look for in a partner? I'm someone who probably believes that based on all of the different factors about who we are, how we grow up, what we've learned about relationships, what culture we come from, those are all pretty important pieces. It's kind of like, you know, uh, prearranged marriages in some cultures. I think about that. Like, you don't necessarily get to choose that person that's in your life if you have a prearranged marriage. But I'm somewhat curious about your take on, you know, what should people be looking for when they date? Do all people need a resilient partner? Do all people need the same type of person to have those skills that we're talking about? Great question. Um, great question. So my, it, it, I should probably give another, another caveat. I, I don't also don't do relationship <laughs> therapy. That's so, my primary. I love it so yeah, much. We do, we yeah. Do. So I love this. This is a nice take on this. Yeah, but it won't. It won't stop me from saying something. <laughs> that's how, that's <laughs> We're how we are We're too. <laughs> As if I know what I'm talking about. So you do. Um, so the. Uh, the, the question about, you know, what do we look for and is it important to have someone who's resilient or, I mean, my own sense is that um, we are impacted by the, the health and the, the healthiness and the wholeness of the people that we surround ourselves with. So I think if, if we are um, really wanting to create a, a life where we're feeling as, as good as we can, as little stress as possible, as you know, good about ourselves, we're going to look for someone else that kind of values something similar to that. That's right. So I, I think that, um, I think it is important to look for healthiness and well-being and just emotional you know, balance and non-reactivity, if you will. As yeah. much as possible in a in a partner, and w with knowing that nobody is perfect, including ourselves, and That's it. people, everybody goes through times where they're not those things. But but yeah, I think you want someone <clears throat> you want to look with someone who has a good foundation, a good solid base of emotional well being. And I want to add to that. I think you know there are lots of people who come into our offices who are finding themselves in a partnership where like this person has something that they need to work through. This person has a substance abuse issue. This person has undiagnosed and untreated depression, anxiety, PTSD, trauma. Um, and the reality is I always tell people, as long as people are aware of what they have going on and they're making progress toward addressing that in whatever form there is, which of course I'm a huge <clears throat> believer in therapy. Um, but I would say as long as someone is progressing and aware of that dynamic and making some progress, I think there's hope for any relationship where you found yourself not with someone who has done their work or is at that stage of like self-awareness and resiliency. But if they want to change, which is, again, I think what we oftentimes see when people get referred to us for couples work, someone will say like, he's, he doesn't apologize. And then, you know, it gives us as clinicians a chance to kind of explore, tell us why that is. Yeah. And yeah. what would this feel like to do something different and make a different choice? So I really want to keep that hope there that this doesn't have to be a perfect scenario. Right. You yeah. can pick somebody that you discover has some mental health needs or some difficulties and challenges in terms of being able to communicate and be in that relationship as fully as they might be. That's right. But as long as they're willing to do some work, I think there's yeah. hope. Yeah. So Yeah, and I think it's it's important too to to be able to pay attention to yourself enough that you know right. whether you are thinking that you can save this person or 
you know, that you you can make the difference in their lives. So that may or may not be true. I mean, it may or may not happen. But right. if that's the motivation, if that's if that's kind of underlying that that feeling that you're drawn to this person, that's worth stepping back and and uh, doing some work with. Because inevitably, that person who is in that role of like either either wanting to rescue or be their savior, like you have this almost persistent anxiety, I think. And that's what I, t I try to help people understand. Like, how do you feel when you're with that person? Are you always worried? Are you always occupied with their well-being and their choice making? And if you're always worried about that other person, you really are getting into a codependent range right. of really taking care of others at your expense. So that's yeah. the part that I try to focus on. And it's the same thing. We're really talking about like be aware of what's going on inside of you when you're in this relationship. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And that self-awareness and exactly like you don't need to be. I'm thinking about when you're out on a date, you're starting to date someone. You don't need to make sure that they've never had any issues in their lives or that there's no mental health you know, a situation in their family, even though they're not battling with anything. But it's all about the self-awareness and the willingness to do something about it, I yeah. feel. Mm -hmm. And I did want to add something to just like picturing the dating, picturing like how do you spot someone who's resilient or not? And I'm just going to throw this out there because I'm picturing that like you're out on a date and somebody is really kind of like go with the flow. They're not really reactive. They're pretty good at a, a pivot. Like, oh, they don't have my favorite chicken fettuccine Alfredo. All right, I'll try this other thing. Or, oh, I asked for no ice, but there's ice. Like, okay. You know, even just like these little things of watching how somebody regulates themselves yeah. and isn't immediately reactive. Um, I was also thinking about when they are dealing with disappointment. Also, if somebody does have to make a quick pivot and their water came tepid or their chicken Alfredo is raw or I whatever. I throw the, the water at the server. <laughs> I'm a bad date if that happens. I'd be like, note to self, I'd start taking notes <laughs> yeah, in my journal, yeah. be like, not going out on a second date. I think <laughs> I, would just, even, just... I would even pick up on that one. <laughs> <laughs> that might be an obvious one, right? That might be a little more obvious. But even just to like watch the way people are disappointed, I think will tell you a lot if they're like explosive yeah. or if they bring a little humor into it. Um, I know it's a first date, but it's probably going to give you a sign of how they deal with other bigger stuff. And this is the this is the three juicy nuggets that I tried to pull together. I wanted everyone to sort of get the gist of this beautiful interview. And these are the takeaways that I jump in and tell me what you think about this. We will. Okay, do that. <laughs> Number one, that resilience you are born with it or maybe it's maybelline just kidding do you remember that commercial <laughs> um you are born with it it is an innate quality you have a capacity for resilience even if you think that you don't genetics play a huge role in your capacity and early childhood determines the tone and number two stress wears and tears and there's a cumulative effect no matter how great your childhood was or wasn't and that 
the good news is that patterns can be changed. Mm -hmm. So if you feel like you're stuck in a rut where you're afraid of doing anything or having any sort of reaction um, or any sort of letdown, I should say, in relationships, because you know that you don't handle these things well, you can learn, you can heal, you can change. And there are tips and tricks. And number three, those tips and tricks are A, the easiest and most difficult thing you could ever do is just sit with it. I love what you said, Doug. I don't say that to my people, but I should. I love it. Lie on the bed. You think it's going to drown you. You think you're going to die. We promise you're not. And if you sit with it long enough, it really does dissipate. And then you Mm -hmm. have then taken all of the power and all of the control back over this emotion that you may have been running from your entire life. Um, The second piece is that three-step mindfulness the skills around making this operational. One, see what's happening, observe. Just see from a curious place. Two, accept, accept it. It doesn't mean you're happy with it. It doesn't mean you're mad about it. Just accept that that's what it is, even if you don't want it to be. And the third is take that pause. It's a gift. That is where you can change your own trajectory, that little pause to choose wisely. I, I got to give you some some positive feedback here. I love what you did because you took three nuggets and turned it into about nine. He noticed that. But also, which is, as which you I know, love. you know very well about me that I have raging ADHD. <laughs> So I was hoping no one was going to notice that the three was actually 20 scooched into just fast talking and very randomly placed. It wasn't so bullet random. Points. It was, no, it was good. It was good. The only thing I would add to all of that, aside from the observation that there were more than three, um, which kind of you know can get overwhelming. But I would say the, the really big, important piece, which Dr. Henry said earlier before, we have to make sure people know this is not about perfection. This is not about knowing exactly the right thing to do. This is not always about making a good choice. Even after that pause, we get to be human beings and we get to keep learning. And I really think, you know, I'm I've been in practice 28 years. I have seen some of my clients for 28 years Mm -hmm. and people joke about it. Like, are they just not getting better? Do you (laughs) suck at what you do? Um, (laughs) But the reality is that this learning process Mm -hmm. and development of of, of our experience as a human being is lifelong. We never stop learning. We never not stop making good choices, hopefully, or making different choices to make our lives better. I love this lifelong learning model. Mm -hmm. I'm incredibly you know, honored to have people who I've seen through kids and college and whatnot in my practice during those 28 years. And I really just think we have to remember this is a journey. This is not something that is finite or perfect. That's right. We need tune-ups and check-ins and... Yeah. Yeah. I I love this quote that I I heard is is attributed to a Zen teacher. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's just Mm -hmm. a great quote. You are perfect as you are. Yeah. And you could use a little improvement. <laughs> yeah, I say that. I, I say that, that so all the time, but I yeah. didn't know 
that I didn't make it up. Just <laughs> I'm sure you have it. You can, you can own your own version. I don't know. Know what I Maybe it say, was you, not a Zen no, teacher. I don't know. <laughs> the Zen teacher. I, I, that's, oh, yeah, that's yeah. an ADHD Zen teacher. Look, at, squirrel, squirrel. What I always say is you're perfect just the way you are, and there's always room for improvement. Yeah. I, I stole it from someone I didn't even know. Maybe he stole it from me or she. I think so. Yeah. That's that what could that's... be. We'll probably be taken off the air any minute now. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. For plagiarism. It was nice Doctor, <laughs> Dr. Emmons, you are the best. Like, I've thought that for 25 years. That's why I oh, refer everyone you. to you. And I could not be more grateful that you were here yeah. today. And please tell us again. I think I mentioned at the beginning, but plug all of the things that you're doing that you would love people to come and find you. Where can they find you? Well, I have, I have two um, primary activities outside of seeing patients. One of them is the Joy Lab podcast and program. You can find the podcast anywhere you download podcasts. <clears throat> the program is available online. And the place to find that, you can either go to joylab.coach or you can go to the website naturalmentalhealth.com, which is my second <clears throat> kind of big endeavor. And they're related. You'll, you'll, if you go to the website, you'll see very much that they're, they're related. But at the naturalmentalhealth.com, there, there's a lot of, a lot of more, more of information about how to apply some of these natural therapies and um, mm. lifestyle medicine approaches that we touched upon but didn't really go into today. Oh, I love the idea, even just the term lifestyle medicine. Yeah. What you just said lifestyle. Because I also know your work well enough to know that even just the way that you offer different options and approaches, there is the supplements, the therapeutic grade supplements, and the medication. Just right. that this is not a one size fits all. And I love the way you think about people and yep. medicine and healing. Thank you. Dr. Emmons, this was really a pleasure. Thank you for your time today. I think, you know, what you offered to our viewers is really life-changing for many people to just think of things so differently. So thank you for your talent, your wisdom, your years of experience that you shared with us today. It's really a privilege, and we look forward you to continue working welcome. with you. I, I love being on here with, with the two of you. You're fabulous. Um, it's just <laughs> been a lot of fun. <laughs> thank you, Dr. Emmons, so much. Thank yeah. you so much, and I'm sure we'll talk very soon. Sounds good. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. Thank you. I hope you loved that as much as we did. And if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And even better, rate and review and share with all of your friends and family or maybe just one. And we are always, always grateful for comments, questions, anything you want us to discuss on the podcast. Mm -hmm. If you want to be a guest, if you have an issue that you're dealing with in your life, please note we'renotfine.com and write us there and we'll be glad to take your questions and comments. And find us on all of our socials. So Instagram, Douglas L. Jensen with an E-N. I'm D-R Talia Jackson. So Dr. Talia Jackson. And then it's we'renotfine.com. No, We're Not Fine pod. And we're on YouTube. It's We're Not Fine. And now we're on TikTok. We're Not Fine pod. You're the best. See you next week. We're Not Fine. But at least you don't have a fishing lure stuck in your shin. But I'm chopped.